Welcome to On DOD on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM and federalnewsradio.com. Now, your host, Jared Serbu. Thanks for joining us this week. And on the program this time, we return to the topic of cloud computing in DOD. It's obviously a topic that's very hot right now in the midst of the Defense Department's ongoing procurement for the Joint Enterprise Defense Infrastructure, or JEDI. That project, of course, is intended to buy off-premises cloud computing services. And since it could quite possibly turn out to be DOD's biggest technology procurement ever, it's justifiably getting a lot of attention. But the department has said its plans for JEDI are going to be complementary to other enterprise-wide cloud initiatives. One of those is MilCloud, the project of the Defense Information Systems Agency. The 2.0 version, also run entirely by a commercial vendor, just went live in February. And earlier this month, the Pentagon ordered that applications scattered across more than 100 legacy data centers start migrating to MilCloud over the next two years. With us for the first part of this week's show is Caroline Bean. She's DISA's program manager for MilCloud, and we're going to talk about where the project stands and what differentiates it from the existing MilCloud that DISA's already been running for the past couple of years. Uh, for, first of all, thanks for doing this, Caroline. And just to start us off, um, talk about where we are in the entire MilCloud uh, deployment process. Um, I, I know the vendor announced sort of a go-live date but back in the beginning of February, but at the same time, I know there are still some ongoing things happening, for example, uh, security approvals still working on IL-6, I think. So just where are we in the, in the you know, broad sweep of post-award activities and, and, and deployment and rollout and, and getting this thing to the point where it's broadly available to DoD customers? Sure. Uh, MilCloud 2.0 reached a very exciting milestone uh, last month when we obtained our Impact Level 5 uh, provisional authorization from DISA. And since that time, uh, we've been migrating a few early adopters into the environment uh, that are assisting us in uh, currently fine-tuning our onboarding and business processes. Uh, we also recently received direction from DISA leadership uh, to migrate all of our DISA applications that are cloud-ready into MilCloud 2.0 by the end of this fiscal year. What does that mean exactly? Are those applications that currently live in, are in data, DISA data centers, but in more of a legacy type environment? Yes, uh, they may be legacy. Uh, mainly we are targeting uh, virtualized environments that can move to um, MilCloud 2.0 easily. And then uh, we will uh, work on the more complex systems. The way this has been described is, is uh, the initial contract award was described as phase one. So can you talk a little bit about what we mean when we say phase phase one? Sure. Uh, the current contract that DISA has with uh, GDIT, the commercial vendor that's operating MilCloud 2.0, uh, it allows for the vendor to um, host uh, infrastructure as a service, but it also includes other services that can be stood up beyond just infrastructure. Uh, the vendor has currently identified OpenShift, which is a platform as a service capability that happens to also be open source, so as a potential offering in the near future. And the vendor also has the ability to stand up software as a service offerings based on any demand signal that we receive from our mission partners. Is the scope of those software as a service offerings constrained at all by the contract, or can they basically do anything that, as you said, uh, there's determined to be a demand for? 
Correct. Yeah, any demand signal that we receive from our mission partners as far as requirements for software as a service, what will happen is uh, the vendor will provide that as a package back to DISA, and we will go ahead and assess it for fair and reasonable pricing and go ahead and provide that out to our uh, customers. Uh, now, we also have, for those looking to migrate their current or legacy environments into MillCloud 2.0, uh, we provide transition support services as part of Phase 1. So this includes design and engineering services as well as conducting app rationalization, which is a crucial step for mission partners who are looking for cost savings within their programs. So we can essentially assist in the packaging and moving of data into MillCloud 2.0. So we can do as little or as much as the mission partner prefers when it comes to transition support. Interesting. Uh, th those transition services, are those sort of a, a, a DISA organic provided offering or is that rolled up into the contract? I don't even know if that's a meaningful distinction. Yeah, this is actually rolled up into the contract. The vendor will provide uh, bundled packages for transition support. So essentially a customer or a mission partner can choose what best fits their needs. I did want to mention that um, as part of transition support uh, services, there is also another option to utilize um, the uh, Encore 3 contract that was just released from DISA. That also has a cloud option, uh, transition support option available as well. So I just wanted to put that out there for any mission partners that potentially may be looking for other ways to uh, transition to the cloud in the future. Are there major differences in the, in the types of services that are offered under those two contract vehicles? I don't believe so. I believe they both focus on um, assessing the legacy or the current environment for the mission partner, uh, doing some application rationalization, helping redesign, potentially restructure the uh, data, and then helping with the actual transition and the uh, designing of the environment in MillCloud 2.0 as well. So both are fairly similar. And when you say app rationalization, does that mean the, the the process of going through and you know deciding what what existing legacy apps need to be killed altogether, or is it more just getting those legacy apps cloud ready? Yeah, it is essentially getting the app, applications and identifying which ones are truly cloud ready, so you don't have that lift and shift uh, task that happens, which a lot of times does not necessarily um, equal uh, or equate to cost savings. Yeah, can you say a little bit more about that? Was that, was that you know, the, the, the desire not to lift and shift, was that one of the lessons learned out of the original MillCloud project? So many mission partners believe that moving to the cloud, the simple lift and shift task, and that's all they need to do, start saving money. Um, the the key to running an environment in the cloud and ensuring that your environment is running efficiently is is essentially to do homework. So the applications should take a look uh, at a good look at their applications and identify if they're truly cloud ready prior to moving to a cloud environment. Um, now the application rationalization that happens um, can be uh, purchased from the vendor. So this is definitely a lesson learned that any application owner has that have that has learned going to the cloud uh, and any cloud capability out there. Um, let me go back to something you mentioned earlier. I think you called it OpenShift as one of those first software as a service offerings. I'm not familiar with that. Can you describe a little bit what it is? 
So OpenShift is actually the platform as a service capability. Uh, so essentially it um, allows for a, um, provides a standard platform that a mission partner can come in. So if they want more than just infrastructure, they actually want the next level up or the next layer up in the IT stack, uh, they would purchase, they'd ha be able to purchase a platform as a service capability. So all they would do is come in and stand up their software. Um, and they would just have to accredit their software and not necessarily have to accredit the rest of the platform or the infrastructure. They would inherit those controls. Got it. Okay. All right. So let's talk a little bit more about what's what's actually new in MillCloud 2.0. Aside from the you know the pure fact that it's being delivered by by a, a purely commercial provider, how is it different from the original MillCloud, both in terms of the capabilities you're giving your mission partners and the the cost picture? MillCloud 2.0 differs from the current MillCloud capability with the way we are billing our mission partners. Billing in MillCloud 2.0 is based on a pay-per-use model for the infrastructure. So we anticipate mission partners to save just on infrastructure alone uh, roughly 70% in what they are paying today for the capability. Uh, transparency was another big goal for us in this iteration. Mission partners are able to view the health and utilization metrics of their virtual environment in near real time and program managers have the capability to monitor their funding utilization uh, for the milk, from the MillCloud 2.0 business portal. So these self-management tools and reports allow the application owners uh, to make informed decisions about their program's utilization and funding all in near real time. How do you achieve savings of that magnitude, 70%? So the 2.0 iteration is less expensive uh, to operate for two reasons. Uh, it is, since it's a commercial service provider that operates and owns the infrastructure, the government is actually able to take advantage of the economies of scale and benefit from the efficiencies that industry has since they're running the cloud operations for us. Um, the second uh, reason it's less expensive is because the infrastructure uh, utilizes open source software, which means you don't have the additional licensing costs required to run uh, the IaaS capability. So essentially, we're able to pass those same savings on to our mission partners as well. And by cutting out some of that, do, you know, based on your understanding of the current cloud, you know, commercial cloud market and, and what a mission partner might be able to buy through through some other means, uh, rough order of magnitude, how competitive is MillCloud 2.0 to what somebody might be able to buy off of another contract that's a purely commercial cloud service? And I know it's hard to compare apples to apples here because MillCloud 2.0 is different, but have you done any of that comparison work? Uh, there has been multiple um, areas of comparison. However, um, none of them are truly the apples to apples. So it's really hard to say uh, we are, from a pricing perspective, very close to the commercial service providers that are out there. Uh, but in addition, we, um, we offer a little bit more. Um, so we do offer um, the additional um, advantage, security advantage, for, being, for having the data actually behind the DoD perimeter. So it's a bit different on the on-prem side of the house. Caroline Bean is the Defense Information Systems Agency's Program Manager for MillCloud. We'll come back and talk more after a short break. This is On DoD on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. I'm Jared Serviv.
back on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. This is on DOD. I'm Jared Serbu. Caroline Bean is our guest this week. She's the manager for DISA's Mill Cloud program. As I mentioned at the top of the hour, Mill Cloud is about to get a lot of new business because of a new DOD directive ordering agencies in the so-called fourth estate to start migrating their applications out of legacy data centers and into Mill Cloud. As Caroline said before the break, DISA's contract for MillCloud also includes a package of transition services to help DoD customers make that move into the new cloud environment. And, and Caroline, just to talk about transition a little bit more, um, what about the case of a customer who is already using the existing MillCloud? In, in that case, do you kind of have a leg up in the in the sense that your transition is going to be much easier, or is that should this be viewed as an entirely different service offering? So for the, uh, there's a few things that we're putting in place to make it a bit easier for our existing uh, MillCloud customers to transition into 2.0 and to make that transition a little smoother for them. Um, we're creating a transition template that would standardize the process for transitioning from 1.0 to 2.0. And my team's also available, and this is for any customer out there, not just MillCloud 1.0 customers, uh, we're able to meet one-on-one -on -one with each application owner uh, in case there are any unique requirements when moving to 2.0. Uh, we also have uh, our mission partners have access to a calculator that is off of our uh, portal that makes identifying the costs of moving to the cloud very simple. So they can create and save estimates, and when they're ready to place an order, they can do so straight from their saved estimate. Interesting. What, what are kind of the inputs to that calculator? How do they figure out what their true costs are going to be? So they would essentially put any all of their infrastructure um, components that they require, so things such as your CPU, your memory, and your storage, uh, any um, number of IP routable addresses that they'll need, so all the technical uh, pieces uh, that are required in order to come up with a cost for what the infrastructure will cost them. Have you gotten any sense yet of, of what proportion of the existing MillCloud customer base is going to make the move or already has moved to MillCloud 2.0? Yeah, so as far as uh, demand signal for 2.0, um, DISA leadership has already made a commitment to migrate all the cloud-ready DISA applications into MillCloud 2.0. So with that being said, our demand signal has uh, certainly grown rapidly in a short amount of time. Now in the last few months, we have been hosting uh, weekly MillCloud user group meetings for anyone interested in learning more about MillCloud 2.0. And just from the attendance and inquiries that we've been receiving alone in that forum, our mission partners have already began lining up at the door. So it's definitely a very exciting time for our program in DISA. I'm just curious from the perspective of, of just DISA's internal applications that are going to migrate, do you, do you happen to know how much the agency itself uh, plans to save through that effort? We are just in the process of figuring out just all of started. those uh, answers. Yeah, so we are we have just started that process. Again, hard to compare apples to apples here, but for, but for a mission partner that's considering, okay, maybe I go with a purely off-prem commercial um, uh, commercial cloud instantiation, or maybe I go with MillCloud 2.0. What are kind of the the, the trade-offs, the benefits of MillCloud 2.0 versus another solution? Why would someone um, think about considering your offering? So what makes MillCloud 2.0 an attractive service for DoD mission partners to migrate to is the fact that we've made our pricing very competitive with other off-prem commercial service providers, but we also provide the added security advantage of the data being behind the DoD perimeter. 
So as a program manager, I believe it comes down to the comfortability of each application's authorizing official. Not all authorizing officials will be comfortable with jumping right away into an off-prem solution for its impact level 4 and 5 data. So our on-prem solution essentially allows them um, a way to test the commercial cloud waters first. Can you just say a little bit more about how that security arrangement, when you say behind the DoD perimeter, what does that actually mean compared with, with, with an off-prem solution? Sure. So all uh, commercial service providers, including MillCloud 2.0, uh, they need to comply with the Cloud Computing Security Requirements Guide and the Federal Risk and Authorization Management Program, which is also known as FedRAMP. Those two key artifacts identify the security requirements and process required to receive a uh, provisional authorization for hosting any uh, DoD data in, in any cloud offering. So 2.0 complies with all of those regulations for the infrastructure and can host up to the impact level 5 data. Now the difference in MillCloud 2.0 is that the physical and the environmental security controls, so essentially that's your guns, guards, and gates, are inherited as part of the 2.0 security uh, posture which protects the data and the systems that are in MillCloud 2.0. And, and the entire thing, I think, is behind the joint regional security stacks. Is that also true? So everything that comes into the data centers uh, go through the, um, the JRSS, correct? I, I, something I've never quite understood is why, why DISA decided or DOD decided to put MillCloud 2.0 through the FedRAMP slash FedRAMP Plus process, since it does live in DOD data centers, you could have, I think, gone a more traditional provisional authorization route. Correct me if I'm wrong, and if I'm not wrong, tell me why you decided to put it through the same paces that a, a commercial provider would go through. So we decided to put it through uh, similar to all commercial service providers just so we can continue to stay more standard throughout the process. And also, um, I believe the guide, the requirements guide specifically states that if you're any commercial service cloud provider, uh, whether it's on-prem or virtual on-prem or off-prem, uh, that's essentially, you know, you go through that process um, and get the provisional authorization. It also allows for uh, mission partners to feel, for example, if mission partners would like to move their data from one commercial service provider over to another one, you have that standard and consistency that they have from going from one to another uh, versus an ATO um, through uh, the RMF that we have uh, that would be very specific to that uh, capability and that authorizing official that's providing it. Hmm. Speaking of moving, um, is, is there anything specific provided for in the contract to make it as easy as possible to shift a system or shift data out of MillCloud 2.0 to another environment at some point if, if the mission partner decides that's something they need to do? So the contract does have a off-boarding support on the contract. So if mission partners uh, do end up, uh, whether they they increased their load or for, 
perhaps their impact levels have changed or they have other data um, that they've characterized their um, workloads as in MillCloud 2.0, they can utilize the offboarding support. And so essentially what that'll do is uh, the vendor will assist in packaging their data and ensuring that they provide that in a packaged um, in one place so that way they can take that to whatever other commercial service provider that they choose. All right, so let's talk about what's next. Uh, you, you talked about some of the the major milestones that you've that you've achieved already. Um, what what are what are some of the challenges that are still in front of you? I, I know getting to impact level six for secret data is is certainly one of them, but but what else is still ahead? So as far as our uh, future challenges, uh, considering that this is a potential eight year contract. The need for commercial parity was uh, very critical. So we will need to continue building out the environment as the commercial cloud capabilities and strategies continue to evolve. Uh, we're also going to be looking for ways to making uh, adopting the cloud easier, more automated, and more efficient for our mission partners in uh, the Department of Defense. Uh, listening to our mission partners' feedback will also be key to uh, moving forward. Speaking of rates, I, I think it's probably a, almost a certainty that, that the commercial market for cloud is going to get less expensive over, as you said, that potential eight-year period. So you, do you have the flexibility to, to bring rates down over that time if it's something the contractor can support? Yes, actually, as part of the uh, vendor uh, provided rates, uh, the rates do go down uh, so that way we can take advantage of those economies of scale as workloads begin to increase uh, through the eight year uh, contract. And so that they theoretically kind of come close to matching what the commercial market is doing in terms of price? I would say fairly close. Okay, and Caroline, also the, the Defensive Cyber Operations Symposium I know is coming up and there are some mill cloud related activities or cloud related activities from DISA's point of view happening there. Uh, what, what, what can people expect? Yes, um, the cloud uh, symposium that we'll have, we will be having is actually a follow-up to a symposium that we had that had a really great turnout last uh, few months ago. Um, and so we are uh, putting together a, an agenda where you'll be able to actually hear from our mission partners, so some of our mission partners that are going through the actual transitioning into cloud services. Uh, we'll also get the chance to uh, brief you on many of the cloud portfolios uh, programs that we have uh, running today in DISA. Um, and so those will be opportunities for mission partners uh, to certainly come out and learn a little bit more about the uh, cloud service offerings that this is offering. So it will include secure cloud computing architecture, uh, the OMS service, uh, and also MillCloud 2.0. Caroline Bean is the Defense Information Systems Agency's Program Manager for MillCloud. She joined us by phone from DISA's headquarters at Fort Meade. Another short break, and when we come back, we'll stick with cloud computing. But from an industry perspective, Microsoft's Susie Adams joins us in just a few moments. This is On DoD on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. I'm Jared Serbu. Thanks for listening to federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. This is On DoD. I'm Jared Serbu. As we continue our discussion on cloud computing in DoD, in a new report, the department has just reassured Congress that it's committed to moving to the cloud, and not just through its upcoming JEDI contract. 
The Pentagon says more contracts will follow that, and it plans to make a lot of use of other existing initiatives, like the Mill Cloud Project we just talked about in the first part of the show this week. For a bit of perspective on the big picture when it comes to the market for cloud services in DoD, our next guest is Susie Adams, the Chief Technology Officer for Microsoft Federal. This is a conversation we recorded a few months ago, actually, but still relevant to the decisions the department is making right now. A lot has changed um, since we first started this kind of, or when I started this journey inside uh, the government as a whole. I can remember back in 2010 uh, when GSA put out the first infrastructure as a service BPA, uh, and everybody was bidding. You know, we we bid Azure, and there's Amazon, and right, and everybody started to get into the marketplace. And then we had the email as a service. BPA. And I think email is really where the federal government started to jump off into the cloud and looking at just the collaboration suite of tools and really be uh, being able to deliver dial tone for just, you know, standard everyday things that information workers need to do in the business. Uh, and that's the same thing that we're seeing with Department of Defense, right? Obviously, they're now starting uh, the adoption of email and collaboration tools with Office 365 for the Department of Defense. Uh, we have several DOD entities that are deploying today and up and live. Uh, in there. And now I think the trend that we're seeing is really where, where agencies are looking to uh, take that next step and really look at moving mission critical applications to the cloud. Um, so we've already seen the jump to lift and shift with infrastructure as a service, but now we're seeing uh, agencies really look at how do I take advantage of things like serverless computing, uh, IoT, Internet of Things? How How do I do things uh, differently when I when I and how do I take advantage of hyperscale cloud, um, for example, at the edge, right in the disconnected world where we traditionally would see, you know, uh, software deployed on a single device living, you know, say, for example, in a Humvee. Right? How do we actually take that that capability that's living there in a disconnected state, yet still leverage the hyperscale cloud? And I think that's really where we're at now is, you know, how do we take advantage of this technology as we move forward? To the extent there has been hesitancy, and I think there has been some in DOD in, in fully adopting cloud technologies, how much of it has been driven by the perception that it's it's basically an all or nothing proposition for any given application, that you got to lift and drop all your email from a legacy system to the cloud, as opposed to maybe do it, doing it in pieces, taking advantage of, of hybrid clouds and multi-cloud type architectures? It really depends on the workload. Um, I think most agencies think of email as a complete all or nothing type of scenario. We haven't really seen too many agencies say, I want to live in a hybrid world where I have some of my email, you know, in my server capacity living on premise and some living in the cloud. They actually want to move everything to the cloud and just have dial tone uh, with a, you know, price per seat per user per month. Uh, type of environment. But on the mission critical application sides, when we start to look at uh, even infrastructure services platform, that's where we're starting to see the hybrid architectures or multi-cloud architectures really pop up, um, where we want to be able to extend, for example, uh, to to the edge of an application where we're pulling uh, data from a hyperscale cloud that has machine learning and big data analytics capabilities. How can I take data that I'm collecting uh, at the edge, move that data into a hyperscale cloud, do some analysis on that data, and then take the, the results and the analytics from that and quickly send that to the warfighter or to the individual in the field to make better business decisions decisions or tactical decisions. I want to put a, a pin in that tactical edge piece because we should talk quite a bit more about that later. But but let, let's go back to something you, you mentioned just a second ago, which is determining which workloads are suited here. I think there's been a recognition for a long time that 
some workloads are suited for the cloud and some aren't. And, and if anything, there's probably been a tendency to err on the side of saying we have to keep things in legacy environments when we maybe don't. So broadly, what's what's the right way to assess and, and bin those workloads? So, you know, what's interesting, if you think about cloud computing, most people think of the cloud, right, as it has to live outside of your data center. And the way really that Microsoft approaches this is cloud computing is a is a set of technology, right? It's really, uh, it, it's virtualized everything, right? From a virtual server to a virtual network to virtual storage. And the ability to take advantage of hyperscale compute. Now, hyperscale that you see in our clouds means lots of data centers to be able to expand capacity uh, whenever you need it. But to be able to take advantage of the capabilities in the cloud that perhaps aren't hyperscale, but still leverage some of those cloud capabilities on-premise is really where Microsoft is focused. So, for example, we have a product called Azure Stack, which is a converged appliance that takes some of the engineering uh, and the innovation that we have inside our Azure cloud and extends that to a converged device that you can run on-premise in either a disconnected or a connected state. So you can take advantage of things like platform as a service and infrastructure as a service at a scale that suits your need, but on-premise. And so what we're really trying to do is, is kind of marry those two worlds so that when we look at workloads uh, that have data that perhaps has to live uh, behind a firewall or has to live at the tactical edge, that you can do that but that you can still take that data and then leverage hyperscale computing capabilities like machine learning, big data analytics, uh, and a variety of other capabilities in the cloud when you need it and easily move that data back and forth um, to, to, for, to, to, for, for uh, tactical advantage. So yeah, let, let, let's actually talk about tactical for a minute now, because going back to what you said a second ago, in the consumer world, I think we've all been trained to think about cloud. The way we've been trained to think about cloud is that your data doesn't live on your desktop anymore. It's not necessarily being processed there anymore. It's in the cloud. So that, of course, depends on reliable, robust network connectivity, which you certainly cannot count on in a tactical environment. So what does it mean to think about using a cloud when you're in a degraded environment or, or you should at least be counting on denied or degraded communications? So I think there's actually, there's there's kind of two challenges with network uh, connectivity to the cloud. Uh, the first is, is as you state, with if I'm at the tactical edge and I only have satellite comms uh, and those comms are extremely limited, how do I know that I'm going to get the right data uh, to the hyperscale cloud and get the, the right analytics back, right? So I can make that informed decision. And what we've been able to do is kind of use uh, techniques like store and forward, uh, message queuing, right, and secure communications that you're actually uh, securing that data as you send it back and forth uh, in kind of a disconnected state um, to be able to leverage the comms that you do have when you have them. And so there are ways uh, that we can we can do that today um, and do that in a secure manner. The second challenge uh, is really when we think about taking advantage of hyperscale cloud, um, historically, the way that agencies, whether you're a civilian agency and you're using the trusted internet connection or you're a DoD uh, entity and you're using the CAP, the cloud access point, is through this kind of single, uh, the single choke point um, where we're running things like on the trusted internet connection, Einstein devices, right, to actually look at NetFlow data, analyze that NetFlow data. Uh, and that really, um, that that type of technology really doesn't lend itself well to hyperscale cloud. And so what we're seeing now across the federal space, uh, especially in the Department of Defense and uh, with the IT the new IT modernization report, is an increased focus on how do we look at this differently, right? Is NetFlow data the only thing we really need to look at, or do we need to look at security in a much different fashion as we start to extend our edge beyond 
uh, our traditional data center walls, right? Where we have guards and gates and guns. And we know, you know, we used to just disconnect from the internet and we thought everything was great. Well, now we've extended that edge um, to this virtual world that consists of devices, right? Running almost anywhere to uh, converged devices, uh, running in any data center, in a vehicle, uh, to hyperscale clouds in a multi-cloud environment. And so how do you manage that virtual digital estate uh, and look at security differently? And I think that's really where we're at right now um, from a federal industry perspective. Well, as you say, my understanding of the current rules, at least, is that cloud access point is really your only option if you're dealing with four level four or level five data, even even though the department is looking at alternatives. Given the state of current technology, what might some of those alternatives be? What are what are what are better ways to do this rather than funneling everything through a single pipe? So one of the things that we've been doing is really trying to to um, help our customers understand how we look at security today when we manage our own cloud infrastructure, right, and our own data centers for our customers. And so when we look at this, it's really, you know, it's really a question of what signal do you want to collect, right, to be able to identify that there that something bad has happened. Right? And before we we were kind of limited in the amount of data we could actually process as humans. Right? But now, w- introducing hyperscale cloud, you can actually look at large and vast amounts of data and see data correlations that you'd never be able to see before very quickly. And so the idea uh, that in, in what we do internally uh, and what we're extending now to our customers is the ability to collect all this signal, not just from the network or the physical device layer, but from the application layer. Who logged in where and when? What applications did they access? right? What data did they access? Take all that signal, right? All that telemetry, put it in a single large data store, and then do data analysis on that so that you can get a better uh, operational picture of what your security posture is across your virtual estate. And so when we look at, you know, CAP and trusted internet connection capabilities, we were really focused on physical assets, right? The physical network. What am I seeing in NetFlow data? We weren't really looking at did Susie log in with a valid CAC card, right, uh, or PIV card from the same location, or maybe multi or, or multi-factor authentication from two different locations, right, that are physically impossible, meaning that my identity's been compromised, but it's a valid identity uh, from two different locations, physically impossible, uh, and access data. We'd never be able to look at that or, or even even find that anomaly before, and now we can quickly be alerted. Right. literally by just setting up configuration in an application and then have policies that actually lock me out right away. And so just to make sure I understand everything you're saying, right, all those all those security functions that you're describing at that point are then sort of baked into the cloud architecture itself or handled as an aspect of the cloud architecture itself instead of this third access point that we've told ourselves we can trust. Uh, in, a, in a way, there's always third-party products that can be either hosted in the cloud Right or or uh, deliver additional security capabilities uh, on top of what any cloud provider can deliver. Um, so, for example, you know, right now we've invested heavily in a number of security companies uh, and actually purchased a number of those. Uh, for example, Cloud App Security, a company called Adalom. The ability to actually bring uh, those capabilities into our cloud is something we're heavily invested in. Uh, but we're not going to ever say that we're the security company. We want to be a security company and offer our customers the ability to manage that virtual estate, but then also give our customers the ability to use the best of breed security products hosted in our cloud or hosted on-premise in their data center. That's Susie Adams, the Chief Technology Officer at Microsoft Federal. She's back with us for a few more minutes after one more break. 
This is On DoD on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. I'm Jared Serbu. Back on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM, this is On DoD. I'm Jared Serbu. A few more minutes as we finish up this week's show on cloud computing in DoD. Our guest for this part of the program is Susie Adams, the Chief Technology Officer at Microsoft Federal. And before the break, Susie, you mentioned the concept of virtual estate in the context of how DoD needs to start to look at its infrastructure and its data differently. Talk a bit more about that virtual estate construct. So when we look at when we look at where we're going just as an industry today, uh, and and you know the challenges there. Before you know when we looked at protecting our assets, we were really protecting our assets that lived in our data center. We knew you know where our data lived. We knew the configuration of our machines. We could touch them, right? We could go in and turn them on and off. We could disconnect from the internet. Right? In this new world that we live in, um, it really is a virtual estate where you're connecting to devices that could live anywhere, to, to applications that might live in, in any cloud. Um, and now your virtual estate, you, know, you have to manage all that. How do you know what's happening in each of these environments? How do you collect telemetry from each of these environments? And then how do you make sense of that telemetry to know if something bad is happening? And so when we look at this new world, really the security paradigm has changed, right? So the new security paradigm really is all about identity, right, as the new firewall, and devices as the new edge. And we say identity as the new firewall because if you can uh, protect your data and secure your data so that only known people with valid identities right, can access it, and you've kind of solved your challenge of protecting your digital estate because now you're protecting the data regardless of where that lives, right? Whether regardless of the device it lives in, Right? And as long as that, that particular person has a valid credential and it's a multi-factor credential, right, you, should be, you, you should feel good about the, the protection of that data. And that's a very, uh, I, I will say that most security professionals, when you talk like this, uh, get extremely nervous. Right? They want to physically hold it. They want to look at that network, and, uh, that network uh, telemetry and NetFlow data. Uh, they want to be able to read those reports. And what we're telling them to do is say, look, this is a whole new world. You're going to have to get this, the, all the telemetry and all the signal from all these sources and applications and then use these the big data analytics and machine learning capabilities of hyperscale cloud to help you manage right, this world. And that CISO nervousness that you mentioned, I think, is based largely on the fact that you're putting a lot of your eggs there in the identity basket. So you've got to have very high level of a uh, very high level of assurance in whatever identity me mechanism you're using. So are we there yet where we can have that level of confidence? I, I think we are. Um, you know, when you look at uh, how people manage identity today, um, most people are have are using uh, Active Directory, Windows Active Directory, uh, and we've extended that capability into the cloud with Azure Active Directory. And so now, uh, you know, most of our customers, when they uh, begin to use cloud services, actually keep their directory, uh, their authoritative directory on premise, and then they federate to the cloud uh, to Azure Active Directory, and then from there. Uh, they can be assured that the the authoritative directory and credentials actually live on premise uh, and behind their firewall, but but yet that when they're using the cloud service, uh, they're using those credentials in a secure fashion to access their their data, regardless of where it lives. And so I think we are there. Uh, I think the challenge is you know helping people and uh, security folks understand kind of the differences 
right, and managing that world. Um, and some of the you know unique differences are you now have access to a lot of application level data. For example, I think uh, the the example I gave in the earlier segment where how do you know if somebody logged on to a system to an application uh, from two different countries within ten minutes of one another, right, with valid credentials? If you can track that and be notified of that and set policy that says, Susie, I, I saw that Susie logged on from these two countries. It's impossible. I'm going to automatically remove her access to all systems. I'm going to automatically wipe all her devices and then tell her to contact, you know, the help desk. Um, These things are real capabilities today. This isn't, you know, rocket science is something that's 20 years out. Um, These capabilities exist today. And I think uh, what we're seeing now is, especially in the federal and the DOD space, is people really start to look at these technologies um, and try to uh, incorporate them into their environments. And, and obviously we know that the Defense Department is looking for a successor to its common access card as sort of the, the master credential that people use. In whatever that success, successor technology ends up being, what, what, what needs to factor in to enable all of, all of the capabilities that you just talked about? Yeah, absolutely. It's no secret that, you know, having a, a CAT card uh, attached to your phone really isn't convenient yeah. to be able to access critical data or to any device, whether you're in the field or otherwise, to do this. And derived credentials are really uh, the solution to this problem. And there are a variety of different uh, uh, technologies out there for derived credentials. But, uh, for example, Microsoft supports uh, a variety of different derived credentials. And so we, we are, uh, you know, our goal really is to get rid of the password altogether. Um, if you look at where we're going, there's been many articles on do we really need passwords anymore with that cheat sheet with all your different passwords somewhere. Um, you know, I think the the answer is, you know, no, we need to move away from passwords. We need to move away from just having a physical card that you have to insert into a card reader. And we really need to take advantage of derived, creden- derived credential capabilities on the variety of different device platforms out there. And it's not just a, a Microsoft technology. This is something that's being adopted by all the major uh, hardware and software vendors. This is something that I think, though, that, that people who have gotten used to the cat card have their cat card have difficulty wrapping their minds around. If I don't have a physical token and a pin, then this is the thing that tells me that it tells tells the IT system that I really am me. What replaces that that level of assurance? Could be a phone. Could be uh, it, it could be your fingerprint. It could be your voice, right? If we look at all the different technology that's out there, for example, today, uh, if I go and access my email, um, it will make me multi-factor authenticate. And instead of just calling me, we used to we purchased a company called Phone Factor years ago, calling me, right, and and having me respond with a code, um, like and you do with RSA. Uh, it now asks me for my thumbprint. Right? And so when we look at those types of technologies, obviously, right, depending on the sensitivity of the data, some of these technologies would not be appropriate. Uh, but the capability exists uh, and it exists today. And so I think what we're seeing now, if you look at NIST, uh, putting out guidance for derived credentials uh, across the board in the civilian space, and now DOD looking at how do we leverage uh, derived credentials and how do we do so depending on the, class, uh, the classification of the data, I, I think we're going to see uh, the adoption of derived credentials across the board. Uh, in the federal government become mainstream probably in the next several years. And that's a good segue to talk a little bit more about the tactical environment that we were getting into a little bit earlier because the cat card is not a great solution for that. I mean, trying try to get a replacement cat card in the middle of Afghanistan uh, when you're locked out of your machine or your cat card is broken. All of the technologies that you just talked about yeah, are, are, are are much more suitable to that, especially when you may be accessing multiple clouds in that uh, on that tactical edge. So when we talk about multiple clouds, 
um, we, we're seeing this across the board already. People are using Salesforce, they're using Amazon, they're using Azure, they have Office 365, they have data that's hosted behind their firewall, right? A lot of people call, uh, you know, we look at the definition of hybrid cloud, the definition of multi-cloud. Really, the world we live in is going to cons- consist of data behind your firewall living on traditional systems, data on a converged systems, right, like an Azure stack, data in, in Azure, data in Salesforce, in Amazon, right, in Office 365, in Google, right, we're going to see these digital estates grow based on the particular solutions uh, leveraging the best of breed capabilities in each of the clouds. And this is just reality. I mean, if you look, I think Gartner and a few other analysts have put white papers out on this saying this is where the industry is going. This is not something that's specific to the, the federal government. This is where industry is you know, going as, as a whole. And so what I think you're going to see is the ability to be able to manage these environments. And that's really what's missing right now. How do I manage my virtual digital estate that consists of you know, solutions running in all these clouds? How do I know what's going on in Amazon and Azure and in Office 365 on-premise all at once in a single pane of glass? And that's really the, the, the part that's missing here. And I think this is where all these security tools that are taking advantage of the hyperscale uh, and uh, pieces of the cloud and machine learning and big data analytics are really going to help right, the adoption of the multi-cloud kind of approach to things. And I, I really don't think it's that far away. I, I really think that in the next two years, you're going to see an explosion of the capabilities to be able to manage those types of digital estates. So the interesting thing about everything you just said is you're describing it as, as this is really a permanent state of affairs where for the foreseeable future, people are going to be operating in multiple clouds. It's not a waypoint to some other end state uh, until you're ready to migrate everything into a single cloud platform. Absolutely. I mean, I, you know, I mean, if it goes back to the, you know, to the years where people would say, I really am not going to put all my eggs in one basket. You know, now, you know, we all know that there's only going to be there are only a few hyperscale cloud providers that are out there today. And it's difficult uh, for a new one to enter the market because of the amount of capital that's needed to actually do so. Right. So I really think that what you're going to see people do is is leverage the best of breed technologies uh, and then, you know, uh, uh, use the competition card to uh, get other folks to, you know, to, to try to get their to grab their business. And as far as weaving all of those clouds together, does that need to be done by government expertise, which seems like something the government would need to grow? Or do you envision that being more of a managed service that another contractor provides? Um, I think it's a combination of both. I think there needs to be an understanding uh, by the federal workforce of how this works, what tools to use, how do you manage your your virtual estate, how do you secure your virtual estate? Um, how do you look at the different telemetry capabilities of each of the clouds that are out there? Uh, how do you uh, how do you judge the security capabilities of each of the providers? Um, but I do think that uh, a, a big role for the systems integrator community is going to be helping federal agencies manage those digital estates. And then I think that you're also going to see the tools, like I said, really explode to be able to do this uh, and to help not only you know federal government agencies, but the industry as a whole manage this new world we live in. Uh, and do it in a very different fashion than we're doing today. You don't have to name specific clients if you don't want to, but I'm always interested in anecdotes. Are, are there are there customers in DoD that you've worked with that have started down this path a little bit and started to, to weave oh, together some of these multi-cloud I, Across the board, I, I don't think you can name a single entity that is only using one commercial cloud. Mm-hmm. I can't off the top of my head. 
whether it's they're using Office 365 and Amazon or they're using Salesforce or they're, they have some things in Google. But the question is, right? are they playing together or are they just doing discrete different things, uh, you know, um, completely unrelated mission spaces? You know, I think from an architecture perspective, you're probably not going to see a single mission critical app leverage two or three clouds at the same time. And for a variety of different architecture reasons, uh, how are you going to talk? You know, that could be a lot of network chatty cattiness going across, which costs money. Right? And so from an architecture perspective, I think at an application le level, it's probably not completely practical to leverage multiple clouds, although we have seen some apps where it completely makes sense to do so. Um, so I think you need to look at it in an application by application basis. But aside from you know each application, I think there's no reason that data can't live in multiple clouds or applications or agencies can't take advantage of the capabilities of multiple clouds uh, to better meet their mission. And Susie, just to wrap us up here, you've, you've said a couple times throughout our conversation that a lot of the technologies and capabilities that we've been talking about are, are within a year or two away. Where do you see DOD specifically going in the next couple of years? Well, I think, you know, when we look at the capabilities today, the capabilities are absolutely there today to do a lot of what I talked about uh, right now. I mean, I think the the tools that will come about are how do you actually manage this digital virtual estate as it grows? Right. Um, there are tools out there today to help you do this, but I think you're going to see an explosion in those tools. Yeah, we're really excited that DOD has decided to accelerate their their move to the cloud. Um, we think that uh, there's absolutely no reason they can't move uh, even mission-critical apps uh, to the cloud today. Uh, we see industries like the financial industry uh, doing that, the banking industry on a global basis um, and so we really think that it is it is a great time uh, for DoD to accelerate. I think the the pieces of this that really need to to uh, evolve is how do we actually take hyperscale computing, right? That's happening in a in a cloud data center and leverage those capabilities so that we can give better informed data to the warfighter and at that tactical edge. And I think that's the exciting part of this. How do we use technologies like Internet of Things, machine learning, big data analytics to be able to increase the capabilities of the warfighter, right? Re almost real time uh, using a variety of the new technologies and do so in a secure manner. And I think that's really, uh, I think the, what this is, this acceleration of the cloud is really going to help DOD with long-term. Susie Adams is the Chief Technology Officer at Microsoft Federal, part of a recent discussion in our studio about the current state of the cloud market in DoD. Earlier this hour, we talked with Caroline Bean, the Program Manager for DISA's MillCloud. If you missed that discussion, find this week's entire program at federalnewsradio.com slash on DoD, or subscribe to our podcast on Podcast One or Apple Podcasts. That's it for this week's edition of On DoD. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Jared Serbu. So long. You've been listening to On DOD with Federal News Radio DOD reporter Jared Serbu. If you missed any part of this program, you can hear the entire show or any of our weekly programs anytime at federalnewsradio.com. On DOD, only on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM and federalnewsradio.com.